good afternoon, everybody. It's, um, it's a pleasure to try. Today, I'm going to um, cover astronomy since the time of Thomas Gresham. Uh, that is my goal, basically. And to understand that, uh, we probably have to uh, talk a little bit about astronomy before Gresham in the 16th century. So let's just see how um, we can progress here. I'm going to say a little bit about astronomy and in the world of art. Um, so there were some interesting um, uh, thoughts about the sky. Uh, maybe the, one of the best known is the, is the fall of Icarus. Uh, you see uh, the sun depicted here in uh, great glory by uh, Roigel. And so and, and another interesting uh, uh, phenomenon that was widely looked at a long time ago, although it wasn't understood at all, was Halley's Comet. And so again, um, you see this um, uh, depicted here in um, um, a beautiful painting from um, the 14th century. Uh, Halley's Comet's up there, um, the Adoration of the Magi. So uh, of course, uh, it, it was just only realized centuries after many centuries after the first observations of Halley's Comet, actually, that it did reappear in a very systematic way. And in Oxford, um, here is uh, uh, Halley's Observatory. Um, pretty crude. It's this um, uh, room at the top of a house now, now used for student lodging in Oxford. And, uh, and this is um, a medal, but you basically get the general idea of... of, of of a comet, and Halley, of course, realized that it was going to, and he predicted when it would be seen next, uh, and had gave, you know, found various historic uh, uh, evidences for, for, for the comet. Okay, so that, um, again, was a realization that there was some interesting irregularity in the sky that um, had not been known before. So art... Uh, has also heavily leaned on astronomy and uh, understanding of the cosmos. Maybe the most mysterious part of the universe is the dark matter, which is most of it. It's a substance that uh, we know is there from measuring its gravitational influence on stars, uh, but we have no idea what it is, and it's, it's inspired um, many artists, modern artists. Uh, these are just a couple of depictions of... Um, uh, cold dark matter as viewed uh, in uh, the modern art world. Okay, um, uh, so in uh, here you see, uh, it's interesting actually, in this one on the right, where you see art with many, showing many different frames, but every, the content of every one is black. In some sense, um, uh, that's actually a theme of how we think about dark matter in the universe. It's in many different types of galaxies. They look very different, but it's, it's in many, many places throughout the universe. And we're trying hard to understand it, but haven't got there yet. So, again, to come back to um, not art this time, but one of the most beautiful uh, images, I think, has been taken in, in astronomy. This is Earthrise uh, on the Moon, taken by um, a, a lunar uh, experiment. The original version of this was, was done in, you know, on, one of the, on, on the Apollo program, but this is a, a re more recent probe with an amazingly beautiful uh, vision of, um, of Earthrise from the surface of the moon. And, of course, this will be the goal of um, one of the main goals of 
future space tourism. I, I, we all expect, we're looking forward now in maybe 20 or 30 years to um, having um, visits uh, to the moon, around the moon, uh, and this will be one of, the, one of the great things, no doubt, one would want to see. That would be quite amazing. Okay, um, now let me take you back to um, the beginning of, uh, of astronomy, the very first thinking about it, and how, how much things changed um, um, around the time that um, Thomas Gresham became interested in, in, in developing the, the public knowledge behind astronomy and many other things. So this... Um, shows you the original hypothesis about the motions of the planets. Um, basically, um, in first detailed by Ptolemy, a, a Greek uh, mathematician in, in the third century. And what he realized is that when you look at the planets, because um, the inner planets are moving faster than the outer ones, they're close to the sun, more gravity, they overtake them and appear to go forwards and backwards at certain times. And so these retrograde motions of the planets have to be explained. And at the time of Ptolemy, there was a very strong prejudice that the only natural motions in the universe had to be in circles. And clearly, if you have circles, it's very hard to get um, uh, you know, changing brightnesses of planets and so forth. So you know, Ptolemy said, well, maybe the circles are slightly off-center, um, and that helped a little bit. But then it became clear that one needed to have circles within circles. That is, the planet had to go in a small circle, which the centre of which went around a big circle. We call these epicycles. And so Ptolemy then developed this idea of epicycles to explain the, the bright, changes in brightness of the planets. There are apparent occasional backward motions in the sky uh, when they overtook a more distant planet and, and then um, etc. And And so that... Um, and that stayed there, but as observations got slightly more precise, um, the epicycles got more and more complicated. So again, we're still in this notion of only circles to explain the motion of the planets. So we have you know, a planet orbit, such as that of Mars, um, but Mars itself is on an epicycle and maybe on another epicycle, and all these planets, all the known planets, had their system of epicycles with the Earth in the middle. So this was the geocentric view of the universe. The Earth was in the middle. No reason to think it was... Um, uh, and, and the sun was, you know, orbiting the Earth, etc., and the planets all too. But so we had this incredibly complex system of epicycles. And um, at, at the end of the day... And the amazing thing is, this theory of epicycles, it lasted from Ptolemy's time, 3rd century AD, right up till the 16th century. And we had 1,500 years of epicycles. Um, and, um, and as they grew more complicated with their observations, people were desperate to find a, uh, maybe a cleaner solution to the problem. Um, so this idea of, of um, having the Earth in the middle was also curiously epitomised by um, uh, uh, an, an English... Um, Oh, he, he, he practiced many things, astrology, philosophy. He was a, a doctor as well, Robert Flood. And um, this is a famous drawing that he made um, depicting the symbol of not just the Earth, but man being at the centre of the cosmos. And it's an interesting um, theme 
which in some sense was way ahead of its time because we've come in modern cosmology to believe that there is possibly some natural role of man, of an observer in the universe. In other words, there are so many universes that are possible according to modern theory. Uh, most of them are not very good to allow planets to form, to allow life to develop. And so, therefore, there might be a connection between um, um, man and the universe, or it may be that we just haven't got the right theory yet, which is perhaps the most likely uh, explanation. But it's interesting this theme has come back to haunt us a, a lot since then. But let's now go back to um, how we finally got away from this very complex theory of epicycles. So Copernicus was the, um, was the first genius who basically sit, took a hard look at this. Um, and um, he uh, said, it's so much easier if the sun is in the centre, not the earth. And then we can maybe imagine circular orbits. But even then it was realised the orbits simply, you know, there were changes in brightnesses and apparent motion of the planets that could not be accommodated by, by, by simple circular orbits. So even in Copernicus' model, the sun was at the centre, but he still had epicycles. And so that was not completely satisfactory, but it was the beginning of a revolution in which the Earth got displaced from the centre. The Earth was now just one planet going around the sun. That, that was the, the great breakthrough of Copernicus. And it took two other astronomers at that time to finally push things a bit further. Um, first, there was Tycho Brahe, who um, was the, the first person to realise that um, there were phenomena in the sky that were truly very distant. I mean, um, again, another tradition of Greek astronomy was the heavens were perfect, no changes. This was Aristotle's grand view of the universe. And Brahe really showed this could not be right because he, he saw exploding stars, what we call them supernovae now, um, and comets, and was able to argue they had to be very distant indeed and that therefore that there were changes in the sky. Um, and, in, it, and so Brahe also tried to have a, a simple model of the universe, but he, he couldn't get away um, from having the Earth in the middle and the Sun and all the planets going around the Earth and the distant stars up here. Um, and the whole picture only got finally clarified with um, the Copernican model basically gaining the day with Galileo, who was the first astronomer to use the newly discovered telescope at that time, a simple two-inch telescope, diamond telescope. But he was able then to, to look at the, the moons of Jupiter, we call them the Galilean satellites. And there's beautiful sights in the sky, actually, with a small telescope. You see these four moons going around Jupiter. Clearly, they orbit Jupiter, and therefore Jupiter was the centre of their motion. And, um, and so this finally was able to, you know, th this sort of argument was really the, 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 the linchpin for heliocentric cosmology. Um, but there was still um, something uh, lacking, and um, that came with um, two more giant steps forward um, in the, just after the time of Copernicus, actually. First of all, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, German astronomer, um, realised that the orbits were not circular. They were elliptical. And this, um, he, he measured this, um, the ellipticity of the orbits, and was able to demonstrate that, you know, in one of the foci of the orbits. There was the, the sun sitting and the planets went in ellipses around this. And this could naturally explain the changes in brightness of the planets. They weren't going in circles. They were different distances from, from, the, from the sun. And so that, 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 that was the real step forward in astronomy. 
And then finally sense was made of all this by Isaac Newton, who showed that the idea of ellipses was a natural consequence of the theory of gravity. And so in some sense, Newton was the father of the theory of gravity. It's a universal law that controlled the motion of the moon about the earth, the planets about the sun, the earth around the sun, etc. So um, that's where we then um, uh, made the, um, the giant step to modern astronomy, really, with, uh, with, with, with um, uh, essentially the, the modern theory of the motions of the planets, um, thanks to Kepler, Newton, all the observations before. So let me tell you a little bit about the astronomy uh, that was being done at that time. So what went into this astronomy were measuring very precise positions so let, of stars. So let, this is before the age of the telescopes, first developed in the 16th century. Um, there were observatories um, all over the world, actually, designed uh, with astronomers to record the positions of stars. This was very important because um, they were able to use their knowledge of stellar positions to... Um, to, it was very interesting for astrology at the time. Many of the astronomers of those days were astrologers. Astronomers were astrologers. It was indistinguishable. And uh, one of the great things they were able to, to predict, for example, going back even earlier than the Greeks, was um, by many of these observations of, of, of stars and um, records of, um, of, of the exact displacements of stars over time and... Um, the, 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 and motions of the sun, etc. They could even infer, um, uh, because the, there was a slight precession in the, in the axis of the Earth that was measured by studying positions of stars, and so they could actually realize, predict eclipses. That was one of the great discoveries. And if you could predict an eclipse of the sun, um, that was an incredibly powerful thing um, in uh, uh, a long time ago for astronomers to suddenly say the sky would go dark for a certain hour. This was immense power. And so astronomers certainly had a very privileged role in, um, in society. And this shows you some of the observatories. Um, uh, there's a, what, what, the oldest one, actually, um, that is still more or less in existence is, is in Korea, actually, built in the 17th century. Um, here's one uh, from Shikanitsa, um, the Mayan Observatory. Um, and again, these were just used to record positions of stars, basically, looking through these and um, in, in China. And, um, and, um, and there are slightly more modern versions of these too. Um, um, this is a famous one which many may, may have seen in, in Jaipur where again these various devices were used to note positions of stars in the sky and chart out um, the motions of the planets, etc. And, um, and, and so this was how astronomy got to be precise before we had, you really used telescopes. And, um, Okay, but then um, along came the telescopes. And so there were two key things that um, uh, modern astronomy had to develop. The idea of distance. We had to show somehow, they had to show that stars were truly very, very far away. And as the Earth goes around the sun, um, you change a position. And so if the star is not that far away, its apparent position will change. We call this parallax, right? You look at it from different perspectives. But if the star is truly distant, okay, then the parallax gets smaller and smaller. And so if you can measure this parallax, then just from your baseline, the Earth's orbit around the sun, just as you do in architecture to measure, you know, uh, you, you can measure mountain heights or skyscrapers, whatever, by parallax as well. So, same idea is used to measure chart stars. And Friedrich Bessel, German astronomer, was the first to do this and he uh, chose a star that was about 10 light years away and deduced that distance, 10 light years, because it displaced its position by um, a small amount um, over the course of 12 months. Okay, um, over the course of the year. 
So that, that, then that began our real understanding that stars were, were, were truly distant and uh, there had to be some, some phenomenal scale associated with the distant stars that we could only discover later, really, as we built bigger and bigger telescopes. And so um, the ultimate uh, uh, goal this led to was a satellite that was actually just launched a couple of years ago called Gaia, and this satellite had high-precision measurement of stellar positions. This picture shows you a billion stars, which this satellite mapped, um, but it was able to measure the position so precisely you could actually measure parallaxes for vast numbers of these stars and prove they really were not just 10 light-years away, but many of them were hundreds and thousands of light-years away. This was really measuring for the first time uh, mapping out the galaxy in extraordinary precision. We'd, we'd, we, were, we, we knew about that from earlier stuff, but this really was high-precision parallax astronomy uh, to perfection. One billion stars, all, all, all distanced um, from this satellite. Okay, so there's one other um, important question about a star. I mean, its size, the size of a single star. And so we'd conjectured that stars are pretty big. I mean, we can measure, you know, we know how far away the sun is. We can see its size. It's, um, you know, 100,000, uh, uh, nearly a million kilometers, actually, in radius. Uh, but what about distant stars? Um, we'd love to prove they really were enormous balls of fire, basically. And um, so this was another breakthrough. This, this one in the early years of the... Um, of the 20th century due to an interesting combination of um, an English astronomer who was a theoretician, Arthur Eddington, uh, and an American physicist who was very interested in, in building devices that could use light beams to interfere with each other. Lights are waves. You get um, uh, uh, peaks and, and troughs in the light beams. And if two different light beams can actually interfere and give you an intensity increase, then you can use that to measure the size of the, of the system for which they're coming, essentially the radius of, of a star. And, and so they, um, Michelson chose a, a nearby star. Uh, this is a picture of Betelgeuse, which you, it's a beautiful star. It's an, it's an Orion. It's the bottom right-hand star in Orion. It's a red giant star. Um, we, we've inferred for a long time it's very big, but to actually directly measure the size for the first time was a great achievement. And that was done um, uh, in um, 1920, actually, thanks to the um, calculations of, um, of Arthur Eddington in which he actually figured this out, how big the size had to be, and that it was feasible for, for Michelson's experiment to measure it. And this shows you the experiment that he built um, it went on uh, one of the largest telescopes at that time in the world, a 60-inch on Mount Wilson. And um, it was a device um, on the top of this telescope with, um, with a couple of mirrors. And the, and the mirrors basically um, combined light from different, uh, uh, slightly different regions of where the star would be and, 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 and showed you that the light beams would interfere or not and that could therefore give you a measure of the size of the intrinsic star far away. And so that was a great breakthrough that um, was made in, 19, um, in, uh, about in, in 1920 or thereabouts. Okay, um, and this, of course, did get immense um, headlines at the time. This is the New York Times from 1920. You could see a giant star equal to 27 million suns like ours was the headline. So it was, it was a great achievement to finally prove that stars were intrinsically huge things. And, of course, the fate of the sun will be 
you know, to become a red giant, just like Betelgeuse, and it will become so big that the sun will swell from its million kilometers up to uh, maybe a thousand times bigger, a hundred thousand times bigger, and completely overtake the orbit of the Earth, and the Earth will be burnt to a crisp. This won't happen, fortunately, for about four billion years, so we have some time to prepare for that. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's maybe uh, the ultimate version of, of climate warming, right? The, so, uh, which we will presumably have to leave the planet uh, by then, and we'll be able to, no doubt. Okay, um, so um, let me just tell you another historical development in astronomy that, that's fascinating when you look back at it. So there was a big debate that went on in the 20th century, the early years, as to whether um, it was more important to do detailed observations in surveys of counting many stars uh, with smallish telescopes, because you could do accurate work with those, or whether you should put all your and hire people to, to do this work or else whether you should um, try to look for a genius who would make use of a really big telescope and, and look further than anyone else. And so it was the question of, you know, do you do your work collectively or do you, um, do you foster the environment for, for an individual to make a huge step forward? And there was a debate that went on. It still goes on today, um, just how you uh, plan your strategy for making new discoveries. So... Um, Pickering was one of the people who um, was very much the traditional astronomer of the time. Um, he, he, um, he, he argued that, um, uh, you know, you actually have to have um, uh, the kind of work to be done more than other. It much depends on other conditions. Um, the man behind the gun, actually it was more the woman behind the gun, I'll show you that in a second. Um, but it's, uh, he was arguing that do you need a huge battleship? Um, you know, maybe this is 1909, the biggest telescope then was 60 inches in diameter. Why would you ever want to build a bigger one? You could just do all your work with the smaller ones. Well, other people did have a very different approach to uh, philosophy. And the main person who disagreed with it was George Ellery Hale. And so Pickering was at Harvard, director of the Harvard Observatory. Hale um, uh, eventually went from Chicago to California and um, founded the, um, what became known as the Carnegie Observatories, which hosted uh, the world's largest telescopes for many years. And so he believed that, for example, that um, you should encourage individual initiative. Um, and it's interesting that here is Pickering's philosophy carried out in practice, where he said that um, uh, you have to have many... Um, individual researchers um, who are not paid much. In this case, they're most all women. Um, and they, he used them to do the, the tedious work of counting stars with smaller telescopes. And he was able, therefore, to, you know, to set out the scale of the galaxy, etc., etc. But it was Hale who wanted to look beyond this and look for the distant things much, much further away. And there was a different philosophy that went on about... Um, whether you, you wait for um, you know, the individual who will lead the way with something very big and incredibly expensive, or um, you, you, you do your work very detailed and conscientiously with, um, in, in the way that um, Pickering developed it. And in fact, Pickering's assistants, th these are them, they made immense discoveries of great importance for charting out the Milky Way. But to go beyond that took a much bigger telescope. And so it's interesting that that came about um, because of private philanthropy. So these were the days 
when if you wanted a big telescope, actually the same is true now, a really big telescope, it's hard to persuade your government just to put the money into that. Now, at the time, there were some early 20th century, that there were some philanthropists who really had great visions of the universe. And maybe the most, the, the one that um, Hale, George Ellery Hale, made closest contact with was Andrew Carnegie. And um, he was able to um, persuade Carnegie to um, uh, fund first a 100-inch telescope on Mount Wilson, and then eventually the 200-inch, the world's largest for many years, on, on Mount Palomar. And it was with these telescopes that we first actually measured the scale of the universe and how vast the cosmos is. So it made a huge difference, these big telescopes. And again, the contrast is Galileo. He had a two-inch telescope. So you see this, um, this intriguing painting showing, made many years later, of course, but showing Galileo um, illustrating to the, um, in, in Venice what one could look at with a, with a small telescope. Okay, so, but we've, from two inches, we've gone incredibly far beyond that. So here's Galileo's telescope, um, two-inch diameter. Um, you know, it's got a magnification power, which is, you know, factor of a t tens, hundreds, but it's nothing compared to the huge magnification you get with a much bigger diameter lens. And so where do we go with these um, bigger telescopes? Well, the next step, the, ma the major step was actually made by another philanthropist, a private individual, um, the Earl of Ross, who in Ireland actually um, was fascinated by astronomy and he built what for uh, more than half a century was the world's largest telescope, 72-inch diameter telescope. Then on Mount Wilson, um, they um, soon uh, were able to, to, to um, in the 20th century, were able to go beyond this, 100-inch, then the 200-inch in 1949. And the latest uh, developments are um, the, the following, that we're now getting beyond um, the ability of um, tele telescopes that are just, um, you know, meters across, uh, three meters, five, five meters, to telescopes now that are many more meters. So the largest one in the world um, uh, for, will be either 30 meters or 39 meters. There are two different projects, actually. Um, the 30-meter telescope is, is an American project. Um, again, partly financed privately um, through the Moore Foundation, but partly by many countries involved as well. And that has been um, struggling to get started in, on Mauna Kea because of resistance uh, from the local inhabitants. Uh, Mauna Kea, this volcano with a site with many, many telescopes actually, is, is, is partly a sacred site. But finally, they seem to overcome the resistance, which consider people lying down on the road to stop construction trucks getting up to the top. Anyway, all, the, all that seems to have been resolved with various court cases, etc. And so that is on track now to be built 30 metres across in 2027. Meanwhile, um, in Europe, this one is purely um, European funded. It's one of the big advantages of being in, in Europe, of course, that we have so many countries there that can put vast amounts of money into science. And they, uh, the Europeans are building a 39 metre telescope, um, and the UK is part of this project, um, to be completed in 2025. Um, on a, um, a high peak um, in at the Atacama Desert, um, some 17,000 feet altitude, actually, in, in Chile. So um, that, is the f the, that is the immediate future. Um, let's go back to the Earl of Ross. So this was his 72-inch telescope, um, uh, which um, was built um, in, in Ireland in the 19th century. And with this, uh, uh, he was able to chart out, look at many distant nebulae. Um, we didn't know they were 
intrinsic galaxies. They were called island universes. People speculated they might be as big as the Milky Way or not. But he was able to look, look at many of these. Um, and this was um, the, in the days when cameras were not really available. They had not been designed to work with telescopes like this. So all that one could do was make sketches of what you saw through this telescope. And um, so he, 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 and then after, uh, after the 19th century, 1949, skip forward half a century, uh, then we come to the 200-inch um, Mount Palomar, um, 19, constructed in 1949, which um, from then up till um, uh, a few years ago was the largest in the world. And then there was a European project using a, um, this was a five-meter telescope, there was an eight-meter European project uh, called the Very Large Telescope, and um, which was built roughly a decade ago in, in Chile, and now there'll be even larger ones in the, in the near future, in the next decade, coming along. So all of this is, is very, very dramatic. Um, what happens after that? Well, here, here I'll show you the 30-meter uh, telescope, the design for that. This is the one going on, on, on Mauna Kea. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine the scale of this. Here is, um, I think, a truck over here to give you some feeling for this. Okay, and so um, there, there's a... Uh, that's the mirror and uh, with a focal plane behind it to, to attract the light. Um, and here is the, uh, the 39 meter telescope, again, a, um, an architectural design uh, to go to be finished in 2025. They've already begun clearing the site and started the construction, the basic construction. And um, again, um, you have to just try to get some feeling for the, for the human scale relative to that. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> okay, um, I, I want to now show you the different sizes of these telescopes, actually. So, so let's just look at the, um, uh, the relative scale of things. So actually, um, this is over here in the center, the 30-meter telescope. Um, and these are other ones um, that have been built over the past. Um, and th this will be the 39 meter. So th these are the two big ones for the future. And these are other ones from um, uh, currently existing. And this is another fu future one. Um, th th this one will be um, some, some 20 meters across. Uh, but all these, all these other ones are existing ones. And these, these two actually are under construction now. But to give you a better feeling for the size of these telescopes, here is the Colosseum, right? Okay, and so you can see now we are really making these incredible monuments uh, in, on high mountain peaks, basically, to, um, to look at the sky. Um, so it's um, clearly uh, we're reaching the limit of what we can do from the Earth, and, uh, but this is about as far as we can go. Um, remember, the Earth's atmosphere is a, is a big worry, so you have to think of clever ways to work your way around you know, the atmospheric turbulence that gives you fluctuations of images, things like that. So, so not, none of that is, is simple to do. Um, let's go back to the Earl of Ross. So this was a sketch he made um, in 1845 of um, a nearby galaxy. And here is the galaxy as seen by the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay, so you can see uh, the Earl of Ross got it pretty, pretty much correct. Um, he could clearly see the spiral arms. He could see the, um, uh, the satellite galaxy over there, uh, which is a neighbor and probably eventually falling into this one. Um, 
but it's just um, amazing all the detail you can see with a, with a big telescope. For example, you can see all these individual stars or clusters of stars, actually. Each of these red dots are, pro are clusters of some hundreds of thousands of stars. Um, you can't quite resolve the individual stars, but, and, and all of this stuff in the centre is many stars so close together, you can't even see individual ones. Um, but anyway, all of this, uh, Earl of Ross got a pretty good picture of. But it was not until we got observations like this that we could really appreciate the grand scale of things in the universe. So it's one thing to, 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 to do this um, the classical way with, uh, just with the human eye, but um, it was just amazing how, how much further one could go with, uh, with modern technology. And in fact, CCDs, which we um, are used to make these images, were invented for astronomy, actually, originally, because the astronomers needed some incredibly sensitive device to work in, to work in the dark. And, it was, and they, they were commercialised for for all of our pocket cameras, etc., mobile telephones. So that was an interesting story in itself of, of the interface between commercial and commercial activity and science. Um, it was a real, an amazing spin-off, actually. So that's the story for the optical part. As I said, the Earth's atmosphere is a, you know, a worry. One has to go into space to get the ultimately sharp images. But one other thing you can do from the Earth is um, do radio astronomy. So it turns out that... Um, uh, you know, we're biased with the human eye. We, we see, you know, a certain narrow range of wavelengths. But objects in the universe don't have this bias. So they actually emit light, radio waves. Um, and now these radio waves, it's not as though we're getting a television channel or anything from distant objects, but something like a massive black hole in the universe will actually undergo explosions and will emit radio signals um, just because it heats up plasma to some high temperature, there's high magnetic fields present made around the, these, these, these very strange objects. And you get radio um, phenomena which um, give you a whole different view of the universe, the, the high-energy universe, we call it, the very active universe, full of black holes and related things and, um, and maybe dying stars, all sorts of things that are very important for radio. Okay, so here is um, one of the... Uh, giant radio dishes that was um, uh, built um, uh, quite a number of years ago, 300 foot across in, in West Virginia. This, interestingly, um, had a slight problem of metal fatigue. Um, so you can see it, it collapsed just overnight. They were just, you know, they came back the next morning and there it was. But thanks to the... Um, powerful politics of the senator in West Virginia. They were able to construct a new one um, and um, uh, within a decade or so, and this is the, um, the current 300-foot diameter um, uh, greenback radio telescope used for mapping the sky and getting radio waves, focusing them uh, with its curvature and studying what the radio universe is made of. Well, the bigger the telescope, the more resolving power you have. So why, why would you stop at 300 metres? Apart from metal fatigue, okay. But how do you get around metal fatigue? Well, there's a very clever approach to that. You go to a huge crater, okay. And in the crater, a natural crater on the Earth, you can lay out your radio telescope. And so this has been done in um, Puerto Rico, Arecibo, Puerto Rico. And so this is 300 metres now. The, the first one was 300 feet. This is, this is um, three times larger. The, the green bag one would be roughly this size. 300 metres. And uh, there are cables that span the, the, the focal point 
is over here. That's where you put your camera, the receiver, to see the radio waves focused. So that's, um, uh, and although obviously the crater, you can't steer the crater, what you can do is you can juggle the focal plane a little bit, but as the, as the Earth goes around the sky, then you see different bits of the sky. So basically that's how you do uh, radio astronomy with such big non-movable dishes. The ones I showed you before were steerable radio dishes, this one is not. So that currently uh, has been superseded by this telescope in China, just finished a couple of years ago, and this one is 500 meters across. So it's, uh, again, a similar idea. They've um, covered the basis of this crater with uh, metal plates, and this gives you a huge receiver, and they have these um, system uh, pylons with cables which suspend a, a focal, uh, you know, the receivers in the center to collect all the, all the information from that. So um, that um, is where things are going in this field. Um, in space, we have a whole other approach. Okay? Here, it's not so much size that counts, but it's the ability to go into um, distance past parts of space away from the Earth, so you can reduce the light from the Earth um, and, and, and get a, pure, a very dark sky. There's no, again, there's no Earth's atmosphere, so you don't have the twinkling of stars. So this is great for doing astronomy. And not only optical astronomy, but it's also a fact that X-rays, I mentioned the radio universe, radio waves get to the Earth, but X-rays do not. They're blocked by the Earth's atmosphere, fortunately for us, but there are many X-rays coming from space, from the sun, for example, from many stars, and from many of these black holes that do violent things, violent explosions, that are a very important part of the universe. We have one big, big black hole at the center of the Milky Way, for example, uh, weighs something like a million times the mass of the sun. And there are other galaxies with similar ones to them, even bigger ones. And they emit X-rays in profusion, and we can only study them by going into space, okay, because there's no atmosphere to block them from us. So that's the motivation behind um, developing uh, telescopes in space. Um, first, the Hubble telescope, which looks in the optical and the um, ultraviolet, a little bit in the infrared, um, has been going now for um, nearly 30 uh, 30 years, actually, um, and it's just a two-metre telescope, rather small, but because of the incredible clear visibility in space, it, it has given us these beautiful images. I showed you one of that, the Whirlpool Galaxy just now. Okay, um, one can also look for infrared. Again, infrared light is um, mostly blocked, again, by the Earth's atmosphere, by water vapour. It absorbs infrared um, from, from, from far away. Um, that, in fact, is the cause of the greenhouse effect, greenhouse effect. The Earth's atmosphere actually will absorb infrared and lead to a slightly more warmer climate on the Earth. We, we, but, but the infrared, if you like to say, you have to go to space for. So you have to go above the atmosphere. And so here's one telescope, which is three and a half metres, launched um, um, 2009, no longer working now, but it worked for nearly a decade, taking beautiful infrared images of the sky. And then um, X-ray telescopes. We're in this new era now where we look for X-rays in space. And so this one um, is a, just a metre or so in cross, across, but it's enough to give you this view of the sky unparalleled that you can't see from the Earth. And um, by a clever technology, you can even focus the X-rays, make images of X-ray objects, X-ray nebulae, X-ray explosions that are as good as optical images in terms of their resolution uh, and, and their clarity. And so we're, we're learning much about the building blocks of the universe uh, far away from these, the, 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 all, all these wonderful types of telescopes. Um, 
so the conclusion recently of a lot of this was was is to go um, to uh, a part of the universe nearby where it's even darker than um, anywhere in space, actually, from certain points of view. Uh, and this is the far side of the moon. So why would you want to go to the far side of the moon? It turns out that radio waves of very, very low frequency are an interesting way to study the the dark ages of the universe. Why the dark ages? Well, that's before there were any galaxies, before there were any stars. And, and, and the problem with studying this epoch of the past is that the radio waves are so stretched out, they go to very, very low frequency. And these also are blocked on the Earth. They don't get through to the Earth's observatories very well. Um, and in space, you know, it, just going anywhere in space is not necessarily the best thing to do because the Earth is a huge transmitter of radio waves, thanks to all our you know, TV stations, whatever. But if you go to the far side of the moon, there you're blocked completely from the Earth. Um, and that is potentially a wonderful site to, to, to study the Dark Ages from. So the pioneer in this field is um, uh, the Chinese Space Agency. And just um, a month ago, they, they launched um, a, a, a probe that is now sitting on the far side of the moon, the first ever probe to land on the far side of the moon. And uh, you can see these, um, these, uh, these radio antenna. Um, that is the, um, this low-frequency uh, telescope that, the, um, that, that will be taking data from, um, from the distant universes and trying to study what happened before the release structures. The, the Chinese did this particular project in a great hurry. Um, it turns out that the, um, their system um, in, in this... Um, uh, construction they landed um, is not uh, was not engineered to give you really really low radio backgrounds, um, but this was a pilot version, and they're hoping now in the next few years to launch much more sophisticated versions of these telescopes to maybe orbit the moon and land on the far side, etc. To do this uh, this search, and I'm sure other countries will be doing that too as well um, in the not too um, distant future as well. But that, that's one future for a whole new type of astronomy. Okay, um, so now, now let's go back to another type of astronomy, which is, which is sort of mind-blowing, really. Um, the sun produces energy um, by thermonuclear fusion, by burning hydrogen to helium. That's, that accounts for um, the wonderful way we have energy to... to you know, solar energy, etc., to, to be able to, for the Earth to survive and, and um, develop life, etc. But... But when this energy is made in the middle of the sun, there is, uh, you know, we'd like to prove this is how it happened by thermonuclear reactions. And we can study these reactions in the middle of the sun from neutrinos, these tiny, tiny particles that can travel through anything. They're very weak interacting, but they produce nuclear reactions. They will come to the Earth, and you can actually measure them in principle and figure out what is going on in the middle of the sun. So uh, that it really is a thermonuclear reactor um, which uh, is um, a great source of energy and heat. And so here's an example of, um, of such a neutrino telescope. So it's a huge um, cavern in a, under a mountain, a, Japanese, a disused Japanese mine, um, filled with um, highly purified water, about 10 metres or so above the surface. And you can see the engineers um, are going around inspecting all, all the phototubes which are above there. And so these are phototubes designed to look for light flashes that are produced when neutrinos from the sun hit, interact with the water and give you very tiny light flashes that last a nanosecond. 
Um, but this happens um, because the sound so many trillions, it's a rare event, but every now and then they should see something. And um, what is fascinating is this, um, we know these neutrinos are produced in the Earth's atmosphere, right? So they come from, let's say, cosmic rays. Um, but those come from above. But if you can look from below things coming through the Earth, then only the sun could have produced those. The Earth's atmosphere would not be making those. And it's, the, the sun makes them because the sun's neutrinos hit the Earth's rock and they produce particles which can give you light flashes in the water. So it's an indirect consequence of neutrinos. It's not direct neutrinos, but the tiny muons the, Earth, the, the neutrinos make in the Earth's rock that can be seen in principle. And so um, that's one experiment. Here's another one that does the same thing. And um, this one is an even more exotic place. It's at the South Pole. And at the South Pole, they've managed to drill using hot water um, um, strings of um, electrically connected phototubes, which are spaced, you know, to be hundreds of metres or more apart, to instrument basically a whole kilometre of ice. You have to go very, very deep because you want to be very, very dark, okay? And they basically, they give you some feeling for the scale of this, um, this is the scale of the Eiffel Tower over there. Um, and um, and uh, on, on the right, and so we're talking now about something that's um, about two and a half kilometres, basically. And in this uh, video on the right, you can see how they can use this as a telescope because the neutrinos, um, basically, if they come from some point in the sky, from the sun, for example, they traverse these strings at slightly different angles. So you can infer the direction they're coming from. And so this really is a gigantic telescope. By looking underground, deep down, you can actually, in principle, see the sun producing neutrinos, which hit the Earth, create muons, which give these tiny light flashes, which are registered by these phototubes. So um, it's, again, um, you know, mind-blowing astronomy. Um, and um, it's a kilometre-sized telescope, basically, designed to look for neutrinos from the sun and eventually from black holes in the universe from other things out there too. Um, but the sun is the nearest and brightest source to, um, to start with. Okay. Um, so, and just continuing with this theme of interesting things out there in the universe, um, I mentioned cosmic rays, right? So cosmic rays are particles... Um, which are um, like protons, basically, but produced at really high energy in explosions in the universe, probably by massive black holes. And so we're bombarded by cosmic rays on the Earth. Again, the Earth's atmosphere basically protects us from these. If you live at high altitude or fly a lot, you'll get a little more bombardment by cosmic rays. Um, it won't be fatal. It won't even be dangerous. It's only when you go into space for a long time that cosmic ray bombardment is thought to be a serious issue. If you were to spend um, nine months in a rocket ship going to Mars, it's been predicted that by the time your astronauts got there, they'll be riddled with cancer, they'll be half blind, etc., etc., because of cosmic ray bombardment. And you couldn't put enough lead around that rocket ship to shield you properly because it'd be so heavy. So that's a big puzzle problem for the future in exploration of Mars. Anyway, to come back to the Earth then we do uh, can detect these cosmic by a very clever trick because they hit the Earth's atmosphere and they disintegrate. And basically they give you what is called an air shower of many low-energy cosmic rays that give you light flashes again in the Earth's atmosphere from decaying particles. So we're looking for these air showers, which last nanoseconds too, 
um, you can basically try to, um, to figure out how many cosmos are hitting the Earth's atmosphere. And so we're beginning to do some of that. So this shows you what an air shower is. You have um, some event coming in at the top, a high-energy cosmic ray, triggering lots of other interactions. And then e each of these interactions will produce a slight flash of light. And you can map them out by having many telescopes. So these are weird telescopes. Again, these are tanks of highly purified water, okay, which are used, again, to detect these light flashes, as, as in the other experiments I showed you. And in this case, they're spread over um, a huge area in the Argentinian Pampas for the world's largest high-energy cosmic ray telescope. And so we're now discussing something like, you know, 1,600 of these, of these tanks, each one with 60,000 gallons of purified water spread over 1,200 miles, um, each a half, one and a half kilometers apart. And they are basically monitoring. You need a huge area because there are so few of these particles and the air showers spread out of a large area. So that's how you see them. Um, and um, we're learning all about the, um, the cosmic rays out there in the universe. And again, this is like a telescope, because you can see where these are coming from in the sky uh, once you start seeing them. We're still beginning to do that now, but this is, this is one of the another most amazing telescopes. Okay, so let me now um, end with um, telling you another interesting goal for telescopes. That is the search for life in the universe. So the person who had an intense impact on this field was um, a wealthy Bostonian called Percival Lowell, who went on to found his own observatory in Arizona. And um, again, this was the days before you had um, cameras, um, really, very effective ones anyway. And so, and he was able to, and he looked at Mars. And um, uh, he made sketches of what he saw on Mars. And um, what he sketched were, um, this is one of his diagrams. And so these are the canals on Mars that he thought he saw. Now, partly this was a, a misinterpretation of, of an Italian um, astronomer called Schiaparelli who talked about canali on Mars. But in translation, the word canali in Italian, I am told, does not directly mean canals. It just means channels. Okay. But um, you can reinterpret it as canals, and this is what Lowell did, and went on to draw his own maps of the canals he thought, he thought he saw on Mars. And so this was thought to be a huge canal network, according to Lowell. And um, he went on to um, write articles in the early years, 20th century. This is from New York Times, 1907. Mars is inhabited, says Professor Lowell, um, the abode of intelligent constructors, based on these canals. And then, and he went on to observe them, and um, um, amazingly, there were even changes in the canals that he thought he saw from one year to the next. Um, and um, this was another headline from the New York Times: Martians build two immense canals in two years. Okay, so you know we, and uh, this is um, the Italian who discovered these canali in the first place, Giovanni. So of course, we 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 know this is all wrong, right? Why do we know this? Well, here are the modern pictures of Mars. Okay, so um, so you can see um, there are no there are you know funny markings on the surface of Mars, which especially if your eyesight is not perfect, maybe or with a bit of imagination, maybe you can start drawing canals. And certainly, when we have these beautiful images now from uh, the, 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 the Mars, uh, one of the Mars missions, you can see it's a rocky landscape with no particular evidence of any uh, uh, you know uh, 
anything not just totally natural um, on there. However, um, this is, you know, where we are uh, with Mars, but why not, you know, Mars is a pretty dead planet. Maybe if we dig deep on Mars, you might find something interesting. That's one of the goals of future exploration on the surface. It's pretty arid, um, maybe with ice caps in the North Pole, but not, not much more. But we would like to do a little better. And so I'm going to end by telling you about one of the most amazing future projects, which is actually to try to image distant planets. So to take images of them. So uh, not just planets in the solar system now, but planets around nearby stars. And if you can image enough of these distant planets, we call them exoplanets, then maybe, you know, maybe at night you'd see the cities light up or something, if there were cities, right, that sort of thing. Or look for evidence of any, anything interesting that might, you know, go beyond... Lowell's canals on Mars. So this is a, a project that um, totally futuristic, but it's the sort of direction that we need to go in if we ever want to do this. You you go to a crater on the far on the moon, and so you you choose a crater near the South Pole or the North Pole. There are many craters near the South Pole because near the poles the sun never gets very high above the sky or very low. So it's always temperate climate. You know, if you're near the equator of the moon, it gets incredibly hot midday, it could be cold at night. But near the equator, it's much more moderate. And there are these um, craters, uh, enormous craters actually, um, which are perpetually dark. They're so deep because they're near the poles of the, of the moon. The sun never gets high enough to light them up. So they're great places to, to put your telescopes, especially when looking in the infrared. And, um, and, th and there's one of these in particular with very high rims. So it's perpetually illuminated by the sun actually, um, um, even at, at, at midnight. Um, uh, the, you know, the rims are high enough and it's near the, near the rim of the moon, you can make this some sunlight, which gives you solar power. So that's the idea. And, um, and here is an artist, and the idea then is you'd, you'd instrument this crater with a series of with many mirror segments and have, it's a bit like, remember the Arecibo thing I showed you in radio astronomy? This is now infrared astronomy or optical astronomy. You can do the same thing in principle with no Earth's atmosphere to bother you to, for, to make the, the, the temperature, the, the telescope beams, you know, to mess them up with turbulence. And so the idea is you can instrument this whole crater and focus the light, having a big cable with, with um, receptors in, in the focal plane, um, and uh, use this then to image... Um, uh, distant exoplanets and because this is so big this is many kilometers across you have the resolving power and so this is the hope uh, and then artist conception you can go to let's say um, a wonderful system like trappist-1 discovered in the past couple of years um, which has some you know a whole number of planets um, orbiting it and that'd be a great place to do imaging this is the quality of the image that in principle this telescope could get and um, it's 40 light years away, and there are enough of these exoplanets within that distance to, to give us an interesting you know, goal to search for. Um, obviously, there's no guarantee you'll ever find anything, but if you do, it'd be amazing, of course. So, so that, this is one of the major goals of modern astronomy, to build telescopes large enough um, that one can have some hope of uh, looking for indications of distant life in the solar system. So maybe that'll come, maybe it won't. If we find nothing, that'll be amazing too. Um, if you look at enough planets. So e either way, we can't lose, and it's a great focus of modern astronomy. So thank you. <clears throat>